Stay at home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. But what if you don't have a home to stay in? I suppose I come under someone who's got underlying health problems, which is my lungs. I was sleeping on a park bench. I cannot afford to catch it. The government had been aiming to get rough sleepers off the streets by 2024. But one Thursday in March, the target suddenly moved. Everyone had to be safely accommodated by the weekend. And then the coronavirus happened. They said, right, we're going to move you into hotels. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, when staying at home is not an option. The government campaign to protect the homeless. Rob was one of an estimated 5,000 people in England who sleep rough every night. In today's episode, I'm talking to Rob, Teresa and Richard, three former rough sleepers dealing with the challenges of coronavirus when you don't have your own home. I was made homeless last year. I lost my flat in, on the private renting scheme. I've been in a flat for seven years and uh, the landlord just decided to put a letter through my letterbox saying I had two months to get out. I couldn't find another place to go to, so I ended up homeless. I was sleeping on a park bench, believe it or not. I, I was there like for two months. What was that like, having to sleep on a park bench? Horrible, absolutely horrible. Mate, you, you don't sleep, you don't sleep, you, you catnap. You, it, you've got to watch out for people, you know, on the weekends, drunk people that want to abuse you. And they don't know your life story, they don't know who you are, they know nothing about you. And yet they think they've got the right to do that to you because you're down at the bottom of the ladder. 
There's been a huge rise in rough sleeping over the past decade, but it's not the first time the UK's faced this problem. I remember in the 1990s when I was first a political reporter at Westminster. Greg Hurst is the social affairs editor at The Times. Rough sleeping became really quite a a prominent social issue and, and the appearance of more and more people sleeping rough, particularly on the streets of London where I was working, was a visible sign of something increasingly looking wrong in the way our society was operating. And when Tony Blair won his landslide general election victory in 1997, one of the things that he made a priority was to reduce rough sleeping by two-thirds by the end of his first term. He'd achieved that target. After the coalition government took over in, in 2010, we saw this gradual pickup of rough sleeping, a problem that many people thought had been largely dealt with. There was still a residual number of people sleeping out on the streets, but the numbers were much, much lower. And they've they started to increase very, very rapidly until about two years ago. They, they've peaked and have come down slightly since then. Is that sort of a result of austerity? It is, I think, an indirect result of cuts to many of the support services on which people who lead vulnerable lives and often in fragile circumstances have relied on. So we know that homelessness had been, in the last few years, reaching a peak. It's been historically high. And then coronavirus happens. And everything changes. Across the country, we're told to stay at home. What happens to the people who don't have one? This advice to stay at home can't apply to people who are either sleeping on the streets or sleeping in night shelters. So what the government's homelessness tsar, if you like, Dame Louise Casey, she issued an edict to local authorities that they had to find temporary accommodation to all the people who were sleeping rough or sleeping in temporary night shelters in their authority areas. And local authorities have been given money to deal with uh, the extra pressures of the coronavirus response from which this cost would come. And so a great number of people who were either in shelters or sleeping out have been offered by their local authority officials temporary accommodation, often in budget hotels. And homeless shelters tend to be very crowded, slightly chaotic places, and certainly would be very high risk in terms of spreading of the virus. So this is the letter sent by the homelessness of Dame Louise Casey to councils on Thursday the 26th of March. It says, As you know, this is a public health emergency. These are unusual times, so I'm asking for an unusual effort. What we need to do now is work out how we can get everyone in. We're all redoubling our efforts to do what we possibly can at this stage to ensure that everybody is inside and safe by this weekend. That's a massive task. There's about 60 men and about 30 women that sleep in there at night and they just put down bunk beds, and uh, like camp beds, and you sleep in there. When Louise Casey sent that letter, Rob was staying in a night shelter. You're probably about three foot away from the next bed. So I was staying there and I, I was, you know, it's better than being outside on, on the street. So I was happy with it. And then the coronavirus happened. Someone complained that he weren't feeling right. And straight away he was sent to the hospital and not allowed back in the building. So they, they isolated him straight away. So we went in there one night and they said, right, we're closing down tomorrow. 
So what we're going to do, we're going to move you into hotels because we couldn't live on top of each other. We had to be separated. So they moved us into a hotel in Paddington. But I took it seriously. I'm isolating. I'm doing the right thing. And I know at one point it's going to come to an end. <laughs> I do understand that. But I'll deal with what happens afterwards, you know. But it, it does show that, you know, when the will's there, things can be dealt with. Before he became homeless, Rob was a youth worker in South London. Uh, when the crash happened, the government stopped all the funding. And so I lost my job. I was at uni. I couldn't afford to stay at university. I, so I had to drop out of university. And I was doing voluntary work as a youth worker until this happened. I was in the Westminster attack, the terror attack in 2017 on the bridge. I was a passenger on the bus. That was traumatic. I ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder from that. And I had therapy for that. And then when the therapy finished, the landlord decided to throw me out. So I've had quite a bad time of it lately, last few years. But as I say, I'm quite a strong person. This is just another part of a life journey, you know. And it's made me the person I am. And I'm quite proud of who I am. I haven't had it easy. My life's been quite tough, you know. I mean, this this has all been scrambled together very, very quickly. How many people was it intended to cover? It came together within days. The number of people would be many thousands. The annual street headcount of around just under 5,000 people sleeping out on any one night is accepted to be an underestimate of the actual number. I think councils have put a lot of people up in accommodation who are in these circumstances. Some charities working with homeless people say that there are still a significant minority of people who have not been found accommodation and are still either in the streets or in unsatisfactory accommodation. But certainly in a very quick space of time, uh, many thousands of people were offered this type of emergency accommodation. Every day on a street nearby, I see the same people sleeping rough. The streets have been much emptier recently, but there are two men who are still there, night after night, even after the government's attempt to get everyone into emergency accommodation. One has an awful injury to his leg, and it's been getting worse. What happened? Yeah, I was a painting decorator by a train, and I fell off my leather backwards, and I took a big gouge out my leg. You've got a massive gash across it. I mean, that's a really deep wound on your leg. There's blood pouring out of it. I'm homeless because of it, and I'm trying to get into accommodation so I can take care of my leg. But you know the council is supposed to be putting you up in hotels now because of coronavirus. They said, um, yeah, all these hotels are doing a big charitable thing and getting all this homeless off the street while there's a lockdown. It's just empty promises. I've been doing every single thing they've said. I've waited where they told me. Empty promises all the time. Empty bloody promises. Yeah, but, but look, you're, you're both here. You're both now speaking to everyone who walks past. And you're having to, to go up to people... You could catch the virus. If I catch the virus, at least I've got a bed in the hospital for a little bit, you know. It's uh, flu-like symptoms, but it'll get me off the street. I think the coldness is so freezing cold early hours in the morning, it's a lot worse than having the flu. But, you know, there's some cases that are really bad. But I think I've got a decent immune system, and I'll just have somewhere to stay for a little bit then. I'll be in quarantine, probably. You want to get coronavirus? Obviously, we don't want to get the bloody virus, obviously not. But at the end of the day... Unless we get help, we keep putting ourselves in the firing line. Do you know some of the other people who are normally here, some of the other homeless people who are in hotels now? It's good, I'm glad that they're in hotels, but it doesn't help my situation. My situation is still the same, I'm still out here, I'm still in the firing line, 
and I don't want to be in a firing line. I value my life, even though I'm homeless, even though I'm at rock bottom, even though I've got a bad leg, I still value my life. All I want is off the street. Good luck. You really need to get that leg looked at. Yeah, we're going to try. We're trying but emergency accommodation comes with its own problems. I'm 49 years old and I currently live in Bristol. Teresa Frampton lives in temporary housing. I've been homeless and in and out of hostels for the last um, five years. And in January, I just got a property from Bristol City Council. Then obviously the COVID-19 came in and so I'm just in the middle of moving now and trying to resettle. Do you know how some of the people you knew on the streets, do you know how they're coping? I mean, are they still on the streets or have they been put into some sort of temporary accommodation? I think the council is trying to put as many people as possible into temporary accommodation, whether it be hotels or like independent places. But not everybody has a place. Not everybody wants a place. A lot of people feel safer on the streets. Is what they know. Is what they're comfortable with. Why do they feel safer on the streets? You kind of have to toughen up when you're on the streets. It's like going into an unknown environment. I think you're always on your guard. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, want to stay under the radar. It's really difficult. It's kind of like being judged by other people as well. It's a lot of... Um, how other people perceive you. When I was homeless, I got judged a lot for a lot of the wrong reasons. And I think I was a lot more comfortable in an environment with homeless people and still am to a certain extent than kind of going into an environment where it was out your comfort zone. Tell me about Dame Louise Casey and, and her role in all this. She has experience of dealing with homelessness, doesn't she? Dame Louise Casey originally worked for the homelessness charity Shelter. And she was brought into Tony Blair's government to head up his pledge to cut by two-thirds the number of people sleeping rough. And she headed what was called a rough sleepers unit. And it was one of the first examples, certainly if I remember, of what you'd call cross-government working. So street homeless might be seen as an issue for the Ministry for Housing. But the approach she took was to make this uh, a push right across Whitehall. So this meant involving not just the the Ministry for Housing and dealing with engaging landlords to, so, so they would stop evicting people without um, ensuring that they had somewhere to go, but looking at, for example, the um, Department of Health and what services could be made to support people with, uh, with addictions who needed uh, trauma therapy, this sort of thing. So it meant getting all the arms of government that she could engage in this enterprise to try and radically sort out a single problem. And it was very effective. Is that why she's been brought back? I know you wrote in October that the number of homeless people who died on the streets or in night shelters rose to a record level last year. Yes, it's very significant she's been brought back. In the autumn, when these shocking figures on the number of deaths among homeless people were published, I asked her to write a piece for The Times, which she did very powerfully, and she said it was a matter of national shame that the numbers had been allowed to come up in the way they had. And, and within two months, Boris Johnson, on his uh, election in, in December, had brought her into government with a mandate to do the same thing effectively that she'd done under Tony Blair. There are a lot of underlying issues that need more long-term solutions, but it is amazing to see how quickly they've managed to get people off the streets. I mean, I th that will make a lot of people wonder whether there aren't easier solutions, You know, whether we shouldn't be doing this more often. Well, 
I've talked to some of the people, a small number of people who have been housed temporarily under these emergency coronavirus measures. And the experience I've heard from them is, is they're sitting alone in a budget hotel room without much company. And some of them have spoken of their worries for their mental health, their missing interaction with other people, and they're not able to access face-to-face support because so many charity staff and local authority staff are working from home, so they may be getting messages to them, but not face-to-face support. So I think this is a temporary move, but it won't in itself be enough to uh, break a cycle of homelessness and trauma for people whose lives have been very complex, very damaged. I've had no complaints at all. The staff have been brilliant. They know where we come from. In fact, they've done, been more than accommodating. They send meals into us twice a day. So since then, I haven't missed a meal. I mean, the hotels have had a result as well, because if it weren't for us moving in there, they'd have had to shut down. So I think that's why they've been nice to us, you know what I mean? <laughs> they've been out to stay and keep their job. It's been a win-win all round, you know? They've given us somewhere to stay that's comfortable, and uh, they've kept their jobs, and the, the hotel stayed open. Is it difficult, though, with everybody in sort of separate rooms and not really socialising? Do you think some of the people there miss the contact? Because on the streets, presumably, at least there's a bit of community. There are people you can talk to. You're right. It is is isolating. Um, I'm taking it deadly serious. I'm I'm 56 years old. I've, I've smoked all my life. My lungs are not strong as they are. And I've been following it on the news. People were stuck in the beginning. Oh, it's, it's just a bad case of the flu. It's not. It attacks your lungs and you can't breathe. I've, I've been watching on YouTube people's videos and I've been, I'd be, I'd go downstairs with stuff wrapped around my face and, and none of them were doing it. And, I'm, and as I come downstairs, one of the staff said, you should be like him. And I said, listen, guys, I said, standing down here chatting away and, and all that, I said, it only takes one of you to get it and then you're all going to catch it. I said, and don't think it's the flu. It's not. It will attack your lungs and you won't be able to breathe. I said, just imagine that. You will not be able to breathe. So, and then I said, then I heard it was over 60s at the, in the beginning. We weren't going to get no ventilators. I thought, oh, blimey, mate. That's, that's my age group. So I, I'm, I'm actually doing it seriously. Yeah, and it is serious. But do you think being stuck in a hotel room on their own, do you think they're just missing being able to talk to somebody? Yeah, of course it is, and, that, and that's why that's why they're, they're they're still sort of speaking to each other. You know, I'm a person that can deal with myself. You know what I mean? I, I can I can look I, I can sit with myself on my own and not get stressed about things. You know, it's going to drag on. Now they told us another three weeks last night on the telly, but yeah. the the situation that I'm in, I personally, has sort of upgraded from where I was. So how can I complain? Do you know what I mean? I, I suppose I come under someone who's got underlying health problems, which is my lungs. I cannot afford to catch it. So for me, being isolated in a room is perfect. The Times Appeal normally runs at Christmas every year to raise money for three charities. We were so moved by the hardship associated with the coronavirus restrictions that we launched an emergency appeal for people most at risk of hardship. The Big Issue magazine when the lockdown was announced or in that period, suspended street sales of its magazine in order to protect its vendors. And therefore, overnight, 2,000 people who'd made a livelihood selling the magazine lost their income. And so our appeal is trying to raise money to support these people who've tried to turn their lives around through their own endeavours and 
give them this additional support and help they'll need during this very tough period? I was just selling the big issues six days a week. Richard is a big issue vendor who lives in a Salvation Army house in Exeter. He's been speaking to Greg Hurst at the Times about his experiences. So I've been solely living off my own income from the big issues. And so yeah, I've had to make a claim here, but we had a quote in it that if we sold 80 magazines a week, then it would be better than what I would be getting on income support. But then quite a lot of hours put in that. It just became a job. It seemed to be working. And also relative to um, my experience doing zero hour contract work, it's just more preferable being a big issue. So let's be frank with you. <laughs> I, I spoke to one man who has been selling the big issue, who's lost his livelihood overnight when the magazine stopped its street sales in order to protect its vendors. A week up to lockdown, I was standing there not selling that many very issues. In that. And it just felt like going out to sell the issue was like playing Russian roulette, to be honest with you, with the virus. And this man came down days later with the coronavirus and isolated by himself in a room in a shared house where he's been found accommodation. And he thought he was going to die. You know, people weren't observing my space. I'd have no power over that. So obviously when all that stopped three days later, I came down with the virus. I wasn't surprised that really that I'd got it. I started um, presenting symptoms of it and felt terrible. And there were like three or four days where um, I'd feel okay, but then it'd be like a wave of illness kind of washing over me. And then the symptoms get worse. And then I got a bit scared because... You don't know how bad it's going to get. And that's where you're thinking, well, yeah, this could actually kill me. And knowing what's going on in the outside world and, and that, you know, and being in complete isolation, you know, it was quite a, a dark few days, a bad place to be. So, I mean, it's like that for so many people, you know. People who have been sleeping on the streets often have poor underlying health, respiratory illness is quite common among people who've been sleeping rough. So if they do get ill, they're more vulnerable to um, developing a serious illness than perhaps someone who's had good health, a good diet and has enjoyed good night's sleep for a long time. I mean, is there something about a situation like ours, about a virus, which makes everyone in society realise just how dependent we are on each other's health? You know, you can't have people falling through the net because their health impacts the whole of society's health. Yes, a public health emergency like this requires all of us to try and follow the government's guidelines and means all of us could potentially be carriers of the virus and people who are in vulnerable and marginalised groups, such as people who've been sleeping rough, have a much higher risk of both carrying and spreading the virus and falling ill themselves, which is one reason why the government acted and Dame Louise Casey told local authorities they had to find emergency short-term accommodation for people who've been sleeping on the streets in order to protect themselves as well as to reduce the risk of the virus spreading in this community of rough sleepers. Do you think this might be a moment that acts as a catalyst for fixing some bigger long-term problems, forcing us to think about them more seriously? This may be uh, a moment to think about how we can support people in these vulnerable, marginalised groups of society. And this is quite intensive support we're talking about here and it can be quite expensive in the short term or in the longer term there are great benefits to everyone for helping people in this situation to turn their lives around (laughs) 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Has the government done enough up until now? In my view, the government was, was late acknowledging this great rise in rough sleeping that we've seen since 2010. It was in about 2017 that it really started acting with announcing £100 million and a rough sleepers initiative to try and first halve and then eradicate rough sleeping. The numbers have got very high by then. So certainly since then, there has been a great deal more activity. And we've seen for two years falls in the number of rough sleepers based on this annual headcount. But still, the numbers are far uh, higher, twice the number they were in 2010. So there's a great deal more to be done to get these numbers right down. Well, do you know what? All of a sudden, there's only very, very few people on the streets. That's Rob again. They seem to have dealt with it all of a sudden, you know what I mean? They've put us in places, they've afforded to keep us in these places, so it shows that when there's a problem, it can be dealt with. Does it make you think they could have done it much faster before? Well, <laughs> you know, it's not cheap to keep us where we are. I understand that. So will it be, will it be sorted out? I don't know, mate. I don't know. It depends what the will is for the, for the government to actually do something about it and is there much will for looking at people on the bottom of the ladder? Are they voters? Mm, not really. If they wanted to deal with it, they could build social housing. They seem to borrow money for other reasons, building a £1 billion railway to take 20 minutes off a journey. They could put a billion pound in, or, or no, it's 100 billion, sorry. They could put 100 billion into housing and get everyone off the street, social housing, and, and clear that up rather than taking 20 minutes off a train journey. If you haven't experienced this, then you've got no empathy for it. The only way you'll get empathy in life is if you experience that situation. Conservatives, they don't experience that, that thing, so why would they understand it? And it's not their fault. They just don't understand it. I'm not sort of saying, yeah, they're horrible people. They don't understand it. The despair, the despair of living on a park bench, the despair of laying on grass, <laughs> the despair of having no money to eat, the despair of having nothing. And when it goes on for a certain amount of time, You've lost that person. You've lost him now. You didn't catch him quick enough. He's fell through the net. And as time goes on, they end up what you see on the streets. They're all human. And I've spoken to some of them. And, and from what they look like, 
to what they talk like is a totally different thing. You, you know, look at me, the way you've been, like, I've been talking to you. Well, I was sleeping on the park bench last year. Yeah. But no one comes up and says hello. You, know, you get the good, the old couple that come over and bring you breakfast over and have five minutes chat with you. Someone five minutes of your time and, and ask them what's, what the problem is. And then you can have empathy. That's Once you've got empathy with somebody, you can deal with their problems for them because you feel for them. I'm quite resilient. That's Teresa. I know. I'm lucky enough to have family around me who they aren't well off. They're not in a position to really financially help me. But I think in times like this, if I have a family there, they would financially help me. I am really, really lucky in that sense because a lot of a lot of homeless people, they don't have families. You know, I'm re-establishing contact with my family at the moment. So it's very early days. It was just like amazing, really. Like when I asked for help, it was there for me. That's Richard. Like, you know, with the Salvation Army and obviously the public supported me while I was doing my issue. I'm trying to do what I can to help out and volunteer. I am involved with the production, which is managed by the um, Exeter Homeless Partnership. And um, they're involved in organising community action in light of COVID-19. So that's sort of what's been keeping me going, really, in a way, in terms of having something to focus on. And a final word from Rob. People fall through the net, but it doesn't mean they're bad people or they're scroungers or they're bums. I know people who are sweeping the streets and living on a park bench at the moment. That geezer gets up like you've spat on him and sweeps your streets here. That's the bloke who does that. Keeps your pavement clean. It's very sad, very sad. But it's real, it's life, isn't it? It's life. Good luck. Thank you very much. I really hope it works out. Yeah, it, it will do. It will do. And uh, I'll start to rebuild and um, crack on life. <laughs> well, all I, all I just don't, I don't catch this virus and end up with no lungs. <laughs> don't say that. No. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, no worries. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times Social Affairs Editor, Greg Hurst, as well as Rob in London, Richard Todd in Exeter, and Theresa Frampton in Bristol. You can read more of Greg's work at thetimes.co.uk and in print. The producers were James Shield, Edward Drummond, and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Big Issue Foundation provides its vendors with support to help ensure their health, employment and longer-term plans for the future. During the lockdown, the charity staff are working remotely and trying to keep contact with the vendors to make sure that they can carry on supporting them. To donate to the Times Coronavirus Charity Appeal in support of the Big Issue Foundation and Family Action, visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesappeal. See you tomorrow. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.